Well, friends, I want to invite you to take your Bibles and turn to 1 Corinthians 13. Uh, if you're visiting with us and don't have a copy of the Bible, we are ready for this situation. We have put little copies of the Bible, black hardbacks within arm's reach of you. should be on the back of the pew in front of you. That's not just for you to use today. That is our gift to you. We would love for you to take it with you and keep it. Read uh, after today what we're going to talk about this morning. Keep reading because everything you find there will be good for you, encouraging and helpful and hopeful, and we'd love for you to take it. Uh, you'll find what we're going to look at today um, on page 903 of that little Bible on the back of the pew. <clears throat> In our house, uh, we listen to a lot of movie soundtracks, and you guys do that. Yeah, a couple of hands went up. Uh, we love them, especially John Williams once. You know, we listen to Jurassic Park a lot. We listen to Home Alone, but only at Christmas. We listen to Indiana Jones, pretty much anything by John Williams, even movies that my kids haven't seen yet. But what plays on a loop in our house is music from the worlds that we like to live in. Star Wars. Not just the John Williams ones, but like all the Disney Plus spinoff soundtracks too. Or maybe the most of all, top of our list, favorite world to live in, favorite soundtrack to stream, is the Lord of the Rings. Alexa plays that one around our house all the time. Maybe our favorite tune in that soundtrack of those Lord of the Rings movies is, that, is one that comes out really early on. It, it's one that stands for this little band of little hobbits in their home in a place called the Shire. Da 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 Everybody with me? Da 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 There it is. <laughs> It's beautiful, isn't it? It just, it, it's, it, it communicates so much of their homeland. This isolated, peaceful, relatively happy, super green farming community that they come from, full of friends and family living simple lives. It's a theme that stands for the, the beauty of home. It's beautiful. It's catchy. It's nice to listen to all by itself, actually. Even if you hadn't seen the movie and you heard a better version of that theme than the one I just hummed for you, I think you'd enjoy listening to it all by itself. We'll probably be doing that later on on a car trip down to the beach this very week. It's beautiful, even out of context. But it's wonderful as the experience of listening to that little tune can be, even all by itself, even out of context. There is nothing compared to hearing that song play behind what is hands down my favorite scene in the trilogy of movies. Spoiler alert, the little band of hobbits wins the day. Not just wins the day, they save the world. The little band of hobbits goes on its harrowing journey through many epic battles, all to restore the world through its one true king, placed on the throne of his fathers before him with evil defeated once and for all. That happens. And there's a moment after it's all done, after that final battle has been won, where that little band of hobbits makes their way through the crowd that has come to worship the restored kingship the coronation of the true king who's returned. And they fight their way through the crowd and there's the king who comes to them and they bow before him. And the king looks at them and he says, oh friends, you bow to no one. The king bows before the hobbits and then whoosh, like a wave, 
All of the people gathered for that coronation bow to them too. And the Shire theme takes off. And not this time with the penny whistle, but with the full power of the symphony orchestra behind it. And you soar with that theme in its context, at its climax. Because that theme tells you that out of this little nowheresville, these nobodies from nowhere have just been used to save the world from evil and to make all things new. And now you know what that theme was all about all along. How many of you guys are going to skip the cookout tonight and go watch that movie? <laughs> uh, I'm tempted to. Our passage this morning reminds me of that Shire theme in a way. Because we come to one of the highest peaks in all the Bible. I mean, a passage of towering influence of universal appeal, a passage that is just wonderfully quotable. It's moving. It's inspiring. Its words hang on walls all over the world, fill cards all over the world, echo through weddings all over the world. I use this text that we're preaching on today right here on that spot yesterday to help Jordan Spearman and Jessica, now Spearman, get married. And it was beautiful. It fit that context. It's a drop-dead gorgeous love song. But if you want to experience the true power of this passage, if you want to see its full depth, if you want to recognize and bask in its true beauty, it won't do to pull it out and play it all by itself. You've got to see where it fits in the climax of a real letter written to a real church in real trouble. A church in the midst of their own struggle to put down selfishness and to remember the message of Christ crucified for sinners who have no other hope. You have to see that this portrait of love isn't generic at all, as universal as its appeal may be. It is laser-focused on the beauty of Jesus who defines God's love for the world. And you have to see what Paul is doing with this portrait of love in this letter to this church. Because he's not writing to inspire young lovers, but to encourage struggling sinners to look to Jesus and then love one another. When the message of Christ crucified makes it down into your heart, the fruit that it bears is love. Let me say that again, because basically this whole letter is about this. When the message that, that Paul decided he was going to preach no matter what you wanted to hear, the message of Christ crucified, when it makes it down into your heart, the fruit that it bears is love. Paul makes that case to that church and ours in three steps. And I want to walk you through them this morning. First, I want to read this beautiful passage to you. Would you stand with me in honor of God's word while I read 1 Corinthians chapter 13, beginning in verse 1. If I speak in the tongues of men and of angels, but have not love, I'm a noisy gong or a clanging cymbal. And if I have prophetic powers and understand all mysteries and all knowledge, and if I have all faith so as to remove mountains, but have not love, I'm nothing. If I give away all I have, and if I deliver up my body to be burned, but have not love, I gain nothing. 
Love is patient and kind. Love does not envy or boast. It is not arrogant or rude. It doesn't insist on its own way. It is not irritable or resentful. It does not rejoice at wrongdoing, but rejoices with the truth. Love bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. Love never ends. As for prophecies, they'll pass away. As for tongues, they'll cease. As for knowledge, it will pass away. For we know in part, and we prophesy in part. But when the perfect comes, the partial will pass away. When I was a child, I spoke like a child. I thought like a child. I reasoned like a child. When I became a man, I gave up childish ways. For now, now we see in a mirror dimly, but then face to face. Now I know in part. Then I shall know fully, even as I have been fully known. So now, faith, hope, and love abide. These three. But the greatest of these is love. You can be seated. The first point that Paul makes in this beautiful chapter is that love matters most. Point one this morning. Love matters most. Remember the context to this point in this letter. This is a church struggling with divisions on all sides. Divisions fed by pride. Divisions that flow out of a a desire to rise above. That all fit perfectly in the culture of their city. That looked like Corinth. But it meant poison for the culture of their church. These people have been... They've been consumed by comparison games as if the Christian life had become something of a competition for them with winners and losers. And one of the main areas this problem was showing up for them was in spiritual gifts. Uh, They're wrangling back and forth over who had the most important gifts, the most impressive gifts, the most powerful gifts of all. And they've written apparently in this letter to Paul to ask for his advice on things. They've, they've written to him almost as if he were to, to be the judge in this case. You tell us whose gifts matter most, Paul. So in chapter 12, he takes up that subject. Now concerning spiritual gifts that you wanted to know about, I'm not going to tell you what you want to hear. <laughs> He's not playing their games. He did talk about spiritual gifts in chapter 12. He's going to talk about spiritual gifts again in chapter 14. But right in between those two chapters, he gives us this exquisite work of art on love. And it's no break in the argument. It is the foundation of it. Whatever else you might have, Paul wants them to know. If you don't have love, you have nothing. Because love matters most. One by one, in these first three verses, Paul compares love to the gifts they were so proud of. He starts with a gift that that seems like it was the one that was most behind this section of the letter. 
the gift of, of speaking in tongues that you don't know apart from the Spirit. Paul says, I can speak in all the languages of the world, the tongues of men. I can have them all. I'll tell you what, I, I can speak in the tongues of, of heaven, the language of angels. I'm just making noise and annoying people if I don't have love. They were impressed by insider knowledge, you know, having the fast track to proprietary mysteries only the elite could see into. They were concerned with impressive, miracle-working faith, the kind that moves mountains. Paul says, I could have all that and more. Without love, though, nothing. Paul says, I could even give away everything I have. I could give away my own life. I could give up my body to be burned for the cause. I could completely sacrifice myself. But if that isn't driven by love, I gain nothing. It's not worth anything. In other words, the whole point of these gifts is to build up the church. That's why the Spirit gives them. If I make my gifts about me, my gifts become pointless. It's a sailboat in a desert. Useless. The point is love. Friends, I wonder, when you think about your spiritual growth, what do you think about? What do you expect that growth to look like? Maybe you think about a deeper emotional experience of God. I hope so. I'm wanting that. Paul knew what that was like. He writes about that in his letters. He prayed that his friends would have this heart-level experience of the goodness of God. And growth as Christians does look like a deeper and deeper experience of the truth and power of the things we know. But that's not the primary sign of spiritual growth. You can get types of spiritual experiences all over the place. Maybe you think my spiritual growth will mean better and better and better knowledge of the Bible. Boy, I hope so. God does grow us through his word. He says that in his word. It's active. It's living. It can pierce right into us and show us things we didn't see before. And it is profitable, Paul says, for teaching and rebuke, correction, training in righteousness. But growth in knowledge is not necessarily a sign that you're growing spiritually. Maybe you think, I'll know I'm growing when I'm, I'm serving more. You know, when I'm more active in the church or in the community. And by all means, yeah, Jesus took up the towel. He washed the feet of his friends. He saw a need. He met that need. That is a Christian, Christ-like, beautiful thing to do. But we can be crazy busy and dead on the inside. How do you know you're growing spiritually? Well, you can tell, Paul says, when you're growing in love. There is nothing that matters more to your spiritual life than growth in love. Without love, all of it, all these good things, these good gifts, these important developments, they're all for nothing without love. So what is love, anyways? And why is love so important? That's where Paul goes next. Point number one is love matters most. Point number two is love looks like Jesus. That's the love he's talking about. A love that looks like Jesus. 
In verses 4 to 7, that's where Paul gives us this, this beautiful, this, this unforgettable and eminently quotable description of the love that matters so much. On its surface, it's super generic and, and, and universal. God isn't mentioned in, the, in these verses. Neither is the cross. But, but in the wider context of the letter, when you, when you know where this fits and what Paul is doing throughout the whole, when you can see what's going on beneath the surface, then you know it is written straight out of what's gone wrong in Corinth. Love is not like that. And it's written straight out of the gospel that he came preaching to them. Christ crucified for sinners. Let me show you. Did you notice in verses 4 to 7... A lot of this description is negative. What love is not like. If you've been tracking with us through this series in the letter, you'll start to see echoes of all the chapters we've already covered come up in these few verses. This list will begin to sound very familiar. Someone wrote that if you take out the negatives and all those negative descriptions, you get a pretty spot-on description of what things were like in Corinth right then in this church. Verse 4, love doesn't envy. Or boast. It's not arrogant. <laughs> Does that sound familiar? I mean, chapter one, right away, right out of the gate. They're bragging about which teacher they line up behind. I'm of Paul. I'm of Apollos. I'm of Cephas. Look at me. Look at me. Look at me. These Corinthians saw their lives in the church as, as ladder climbing. They're all on the ladder. Some of them are below, looking up with envy. But love doesn't envy. Some of them are up above, looking down with arrogance. Love is not arrogant, though. Paul says, love, love steps off that ladder. Verse 5, love does not insist on its own way. Not like those strong conscience Corinthians who dug in on their right to eat meat from the temple no matter who got trampled in the process. Love is not irritable or resentful, not quick to anger, and not holding on to wrongs. In other words, not like those Christians in Corinth who were taking one another to court, chapter 6, demanding satisfaction. I will have my rights. Instead of giving forgiveness. Verse 6, love does not rejoice at wrongdoing, but rejoices with the truth. In other words, not like these Corinthian Christians from chapter 5 who refused to confront a member who was just openly disobeying what Jesus taught about sex, as if it didn't matter. Remember the context? Chapter 5, Paul says, it's actually reported that there's sexual immorality among you of a kind that's not tolerated even among pagans, for a man has his father's wife. And you remember what he said? And you're arrogant. Ought you not rather to mourn? Love doesn't rejoice at wrongdoing. Love is brokenhearted. Love can't rejoice or affirm something Jesus says is harmful. That failure to confront was a failure to love. He's saying, in other words, the same love that doesn't hold on to wrongs, the same love that doesn't keep a record of them, the same love that doesn't take things personally, the same love that's, on, that's gracious on the receiving end of some mistreatment calls out wrong when it's damaging and dangerous for the one that you love for the person who's caught up in it can you see all these connections all these echoes he's writing this out of his personal knowledge of all that was going wrong in Corinth and showing them you are not loving 
It's like a photo negative of the church. Some of the description, though, is positive. Look back at the verses with me. Love is patient, Paul says. Meaning, in other words, love, love bears with and endures all things. It's not quick to give up on somebody. Love, love gives time and space and grace to be where you, are, where you are now on the way to being something more. Love will help you as you move forward, no matter how slowly. Love is kind. One commentator summed that up as, as recognizing that everyone carries a heavy load. I love that. Kindness is recognizing everybody carries a heavy load. Kindness, love says, let me see if I can't get myself up under that load with you. Let's see if they're in room for my shoulders next to yours under what you're carrying. Love says, how can I get your burden up here? It's quite a description, isn't it? We could go further. I mean, we could do a whole sermon series where we just take one element for each sermon, and that would be fun and beautiful. But I think we already, just from a quick glance at these characteristics, there are a couple things you could see or assumed in what Paul writes right there. When Paul talks about what love is, his list assumes you're not being treated the way you want to be, the way you ought to be. And it assumes something matters more to you than how you're being treated. If I were to risk taking this description and putting it into a summary, I'd put it something like this. The love Paul's talking about, the love that is the central sign of true spiritual growth, it's a care for someone so deep that it'll put up with anything for the chance to do them good, even if it costs you. The love he's talking about is a care for somebody that is so deep, it'll put up with anything for the chance to do them good, even if it costs you. Which is to say, love looks like Jesus. Paul's an artist in this text. He's not going for precision. He's not, he's not giving us definitions. He's, he's going for color and contrast. But he's not an artist working from his own head, is he? He's painting a portrait that has a model sitting right there next to his canvas. When he paints this picture of love, he's thinking of Christ crucified the one he came preaching to them, the one who's been behind every argument that he's made for renewal and for repair in this struggling and, and self-focused congregation. He's thinking about Jesus who was so patient, wasn't he? Think about Jesus with his disciples. These guys are so thick-headed. <laughs> they struggle to understand him. No matter how clearly he explained himself, after years of following him, his disciples are still arguing with each other about who's going to rank the highest in his kingdom. That was like right before he died, right before it was all over. That's the conversation they're having while he marches to the cross. <laughs> Who at the moment he needed the most ran away from him. And then when he's resurrected, who does he come back to? 
He comes right back to them, the guys who bailed on him when he needed them most. And they're doubting him. Think of Thomas. I won't believe unless I see his hands and see his side. And Jesus comes straight to Thomas and he says, all right, Thomas, here, touch that. Here, put your hand right there. Now do you believe? I'll give you what you need. How patient was that man? Jesus was kind too, wasn't he? Especially to the sick, to the sinners who came to him with their shame. Think about that woman who busted in on the dinner party at the Pharisee's house. Jesus is there as one of the guests of honor, and she comes straight up to him, and she's putting perfume on him, and she's just weeping her tears. She's so ashamed but so relieved to be in his presence. She's wiping off the tears with her hair on his feet, and the Pharisees are scandalized. He he thinks he knows everything. He doesn't even know she's a sinner. (laughs) Poor guy. He doesn't know he's just been defiled. Jesus is like, no, I'll take that shame on me. Put it right here. I'll carry it. Your shame is now mine. Love keeps no record of wrongs, but forgives just like Jesus did. When he looked from the cross in his moment of ultimate and unimaginable pain, And thought of the good of those who put him there. And said, Father, forgive them. They don't know what they're doing. Love endures all things. Just as Jesus endured the cross for the joy that was set before him. What joy? A people that he loves. Set free forever from sin and death. Made new restored to the God who made them. This is no universal ideal that Paul is just waxing eloquent upon. This is a portrait with a model. Its context isn't Valentine's Day cards. It's not even weddings as perfectly suited as it is for them. The context is Calvary. It's the blood and the sweat and the tears of a real body, really broken for real sinners who need real redemption. Love will put up with anything for the chance to help the beloved, even when it's costly. And when Paul says that here, he's only saying in poetic form what he says in letter after letter after letter. Love one another as Christ loved you. You love one another as Christ loved you. Friends, the the chief sign of our growth as Christians is that we're going to be less and less interested in proving our own maturity than in helping others mature. That we'll not be as interested in the amount of attention we draw to ourselves as we are in the amount of attention we can give to those who are around us. It'll mean living always on the hunt for what we can do to spend ourselves for other people. Love doesn't ask, how am I being treated? Love asks, how can I help? Love doesn't ask, how much will it cost me if I enter in? Love asks, what would be best for the one I love? Love doesn't ask, how am I being perceived right now? But, but how can I serve? How can you grow in a love like this? Well, the first thing I want to say about that, guys, is you have to experience it first. If you want to grow in this love that looks like Jesus' love, your only hope, really is first of all to experience his love in your own life. Uh, The love of Jesus is an offer free of charge before it is ever a calling that we step into. If you're here evaluating Christianity, this is where I really want to speak straight to you. I know that's a beautiful thing I just read. 
wonderful ideals to strive for. Our, our belief is you got no chance. None of us do. Unless we first experience a love we know we don't deserve. Our view of humanity as Christians is darker and more hopeful than you'll find anywhere else. I mean, on the dark side, we believe that our selfishness is not a bug now. It's a feature now of what it is to be human. It, it, we didn't start out this way, but now we come this way. Our selfishness isn't an occasional slip due to a lack of focus, due to being in the wrong place at the wrong time with the wrong set of pressures applied. It's not like that. It's hardwired. It's our orientation. It guides us. We can't rewire ourselves on our own. I mean, our selfishness, our me-firstness, <laughs> it even infects our best versions of love by ourselves on our own. I love Vanderbilt baseball. That meant last night I did not love Oregon baseball. I love my country more than I love Canada. Even though poutine is really an interesting culinary invention. I love my kids more than I love your kids by far. As great as they may be. I love these things more because they're little extensions of me. And this me first orientation, it's behind, we believe it's behind everything that's wrong with the world. All of it. From every bomb dropped in Kiev to every cutting word spoken behind the back of a friend. This me-first, self-centered way of being is what the Bible means by sin. And it's in all of us. And it isn't just harmful to other people. It's ultimately a problem because it eliminates God from the picture. In our sin, we live like we don't owe our lives to him. As if... What he wants from us doesn't matter next to what we want for ourselves. That, that challenge to God, that coming at God means a penalty. He has to set that record straight. He loves justice and holiness so much that he can't let that stand. It would be terrible for all the world and it's beneath him. That's the dark side of what we believe about humanity and our condition by ourselves. The hopeful side is that we also think humanity is important enough to the God who made us, who made us unique among all of his creation, that he loved this world so much, even in its sin against him, that he sent his only son to live what we should have lived, to die even though he didn't deserve it, so that our penalty for sin could be paid for completely. That's how much he loves those who turned against him. That's what his love is like. He sent his own son to endure all things, even the wrath of God against sin, to do what his love, what God's love drove him to do. His death on the cross was him freeing us from a penalty we should have to pay so that he could then renovate us into a people that loves like he does. So before you even think about growing in love, as inspiring as this may be for you, the first thing you need to know is that you've got to come to him for his love before you start to copy him. His love has got to be the root. Your love, my love, that's the fruit. 
Part of experiencing God's love is receiving God's own spirit to make you new from the inside out. That's what Paul's talking about in this whole section. He's talking about the gift of the spirit to, to give us gifts that change who we are, that bring out the beauty of Jesus in our life as we continue to grow. That's what he's talking about here. And in another letter, when he talks about the spirit and he talks about the kind of fruit that the spirit brings out of a life, the first fruit of the spirit is love. This kind of love right here, 1 Corinthians 13 love, is what the Spirit works out in our lives. That's the gift, <laughs> not the ones they were obsessed with and arguing over. If you want to grow in love, the Spirit's got to grow you, and we ought to ask him to because he loves to do it, and he loves to receive our prayers when we ask him for his help. So all that is to say, super practically, I'd encourage you, use this verses 4 to 7, this profile of love, Use that profile to feed your prayer life. Take this list of characteristics and hold it up to your own life like a mirror. Where do you see something missing? Where you see it, don't hang your head in shame. Ask the Spirit for more love and see that He get, watch Him give it to you. Are you discouraged by how quickly your patience runs out toward your kids? Ask him for more love because that's what you need. Are you discouraged because of how much you envy other people? Because of how often you feel yourself drawn into that online vortex of envy that we're all drawn into these days? Ask him for more love. Love is the antidote to envy. Do you catch yourself boasting more than you wish you did? <laughs> Maybe passive-aggressively at least. Maybe you find yourself commenting on how humbled you are by your awesomeness. <laughs> how many times you comment on how, by God's grace, you're crushing it right now in these specific ways that I hope you'll notice. <laughs> Pray for more love. That's what's missing. You having a hard time of letting go of something? I know that's miserable. That is the worst. It hurts. You're as big a victim by holding on to it as you may have been from the wrong itself. Is that what you're feeling today? Ask for more love. Love doesn't keep a record of wrongs. Are you afraid of confronting something that you see in the life of a friend that you love even though you're convinced it is not honoring to God or good for them. Because you know it might complicate the friendship or hurt your reputation or just generally make your life more stressful. The reality is it might do all of that and more if you challenge them. But what you need to pray for is enough love to pay what it costs to serve them, to do them good. Because that's what love does. And friends, the Spirit of God, He loves to answer prayers for more love. His role in our lives is to answer prayers like this. Because His ultimate goal, what the Spirit loves to do most, is to bring out the beauty of Jesus 
for all the world to see. He loves for Jesus to get glory. And Jesus gets glory when we love like he did. Here's another suggestion for you. If you want to grow in this love, find somebody that you see living out this beautiful love and get real close to them. Snuggle up next to them, metaphorically speaking. Ask them how they're doing what they're doing, what they're thinking, how they're praying, what they would recommend to you. And Paul has just been telling the Corinthians to, to imitate him as he just seeks what's best for everybody. He doesn't seek himself. He doesn't insist on his own rights. That's chapter 10. And then he says, I, imitate me. I'm just imitating Jesus. Who do you have around you that you could imitate as a way of imitating Jesus? Go to him and get up close. And the last thing I'd encourage you with, if you want to grow in this love, is just to start doing it. To just go after specific and concrete and real life actions of love. And then watch what the Lord does while you practice. Go hunting for some nondescript but genuinely helpful way to build somebody else up. And I want you to see that not just as like you white-knuckling your way into obedience, this willpower. But as a step of faith, you might not feel anything. That means you're going to have to trust the Lord to give you what you need to do what he's told you to do. You just going for it is part of how you show faith in him, taking up his call to love and watching him work as he bears his fruit in you. He says, my future is a love like the love of Jesus. That's what the Spirit is doing in me right now. I'm just going to step into that and see what he does with it. Remember, friends, it is, it is worth this effort because love matters most. Now we know what love Paul was talking about when he said love matters most. It's a love that looks like Jesus. A love apart from which all of it is just all for nothing. And that brings me to our last point. And a final question. Why, why is love so important? Why is it that this love matters so much? That this love a love like Jesus' love is the chief sign of our spiritual growth as Christians. That's what Paul picks up in the final few verses. Point number three, love lasts forever. Love matters most, this love that looks like Jesus, because love lasts forever. Verse eight, love never ends Perfect love is our future. Every other gift that we ever get is just temporary. It's a means to some other end. And that end is love. Because God is love. And one day, seeing him like he is, we're going to be made like him. When we love now, we point to then. Let me show you this. Verses 8 to 12. Paul says love never ends. And then again, he goes into contrasts between love and the gifts they were so interested in. The prophecies that they were so compelled by, they'll pass away. Verse 8. Tongues, they'll cease. Knowledge, probably some sort of insider proprietary knowledge like he had in mind in, in chapter 12, what he called utterances of knowledge, though I'm not 100% sure what that means. Whatever it is, it'll pass away, Paul says. These gifts end. His point is that 
the kinds of gifts they're so enamored with, as wonderful as they might be, are just temporary. We're not going to need them forever. For now, verse 12, we see in a mirror dimly. But then one day we'll see face to face. One day we'll see God as he is. One day we'll know God as God knows us. That's intimately. That's thoroughly. That's, that's perfectly. And the encounter that we will have with God will transform us completely. That's what he's saying. When we see God as God is, when we're transformed from what we are now to what will be forever, when the perfect has come and the partial has passed away, verse 10, what will we be like? I think verse 13 drives this point home and ties together why this love that matters so much matters as much as it does for us as Christians as our, in our growth, but, but also for our mission as a church. Look at verse 13. Paul says that faith, hope, and love abide. These are on a special tier in the gifts that God gives. But the greatest of these is love. Why? Why? What is it about love that rises above the rest of these precious gifts? Paul doesn't actually say, not in a very clear and straightforward way, and not everybody agrees, to be honest. But I'm going to tell you the explanation I find most insightful. The New Testament scholar named C.K. Barrett in his commentary on this verse poses a simple test for these three main virtues. Faith, hope, love. Does God have faith? No, he doesn't need it. For now, it's the key to our salvation. We have to have faith. Faith alone. But one day our faith will be turned to sight. We won't need it any more than God does. Does God have hope? No, he doesn't need it. God is the same yesterday, today, and forever. God rules over all. He is completely secure in who he is and what he's doing. For now, we cling to hope. Because we've got some amazing promises that we haven't seen come to pass yet. But one day, we won't need hope anymore either. We will see it all. So what about love? God doesn't just have love. God is love. He is love. In his very being, God is love. 1 John chapter 3 says, Beloved, we are God's children now, and what we will be has not yet appeared. But we know that when he appears, we shall be like him, because we shall see him as he is. When we see God as he is, what he is will be like a tractor beam we can't escape, drawing us into him deeper and deeper making us like him more and more fully. And when God makes us like him, what will we be? We will be loving, perfectly, purely loving, just like he is. The greatest of these is love because love 
never ends. Love is our future. Can you see what Paul's doing? He's trying to restore this this broken down, self-obsessed, fledgling little church. And he's not just scolding them with all of their awfulness. He's wooing them with hope. The strongest weapon in his arsenal is hope. They thought the gifts of tongues were the best sign of heaven on earth. I want that one because that'll show I'm with heaven. They thought that's where people could notice and experience a foretaste of what's coming. Paul says to them, wrong. It's love. Love is where you see and taste heaven on earth. Perfect love is your future. Love is the end game for all of your gifts. That's why he makes this comparison to childish ways yielding to maturity in verse 11. He used to think as a child, speak as a child, reason like a child because he was a child. But when he became a man, he gave all that up. They're behaving like kids. They're overvaluing some gifts and undervaluing the one that matters most. What do toddlers play with on Christmas morning? They play with the cardboard boxes. We all know that. They make forts out of them. They climb in and out of them. They cut them up and repurpose them. The boxes are the key. Those are their favorites. What three-year-old wouldn't rather have a ring pop than a diamond ring? What eight-year-old, how many eight-year-olds do you know who wouldn't choose a Nintendo Switch over Nintendo stock options? Like zero. Every single one of them would want the Switch because they're kids. And there's no offense to you kids in that. Part of being a kid is not always being able to value things properly. Not always having the, the broader perspective that you get when you age. The Corinthians are locked in on the cardboard boxes. They're fun. They're awesome. They're great. But come on, but love though, but love, it's forever. It's your future, it's heaven. You can taste it now. When we use our gifts to love one another, what we're doing is practicing for our eternal home, that perfect world of love. And our job as a church is to give a taste of that heavenly world right here, right now in our world. That's our opportunity That is our calling, to say together in a thousand little ways, day in and day out, my life for yours. When we love one another like this, we show on earth how it is in heaven. And it is beautiful. Let's pray. Father, we ask you for the strength and the fruit of your spirit in our lives to love one another in the way you've loved us. Give us this taste of heaven and don't let us settle for anything less. For your glory, we pray. Amen.